HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Amanda Hester is CEO and co founder of Food 52, a food, home, and lifestyle brand. And now in its 10th year, right, 10th year, yeah. Food 52 has evolved widely from the recipe sharing site it used to be and recently closed a very large funding round, which we'll talk about later. Um, Amanda and I will be picking up where UK food writer Sybil Kapoor and I left off last week. Last week we talked about what taste means, how it is biologically, culturally, and socially constructed, and why it's important to continually challenge our own. But today we'll be talking about how taste is determined in our supposedly algorithmically optimized world, if unique taste, or if our taste is truly unique, and whether SEO-driven content hurts or helps us. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thank you. So glad to be here. I had two sips of that coffee and I feel... Great. <laughs> I'm back. I was kind of sleepy, but I'm back. Um, so first, some housekeeping for people unfamiliar with Food 52. Can you talk about what it is, um, what problems you were trying to solve when leaving the New York Times back then, and what it looked like back then? Okay. So, okay, I'll start with today and then go back. Um, so Food 52 is a comprehensive resource for people who see food at the center of a well-lived life. And um, that may sound kind of broad, and that's actually, that's quite intentional because that's what we saw was that, um, you know, if you rewind 10 years, and actually just listening to the intro realized that Heritage Radio started 10 years ago also, um, they were way ahead on the podcast front, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, and we... You know, we, Meryl, my co-founder, Meryl Stubbs, my co-founder and I, uh, we um, had been food journalists, food writers, also trained cooks. And, um, you know, one of the things that we, we, you know, you do as a food writer is you're constantly 
um, connecting dots of like what's happening culturally um, and in this, you know, in the food world um, and, and connecting them, you know, seeing them before the average reader does connecting the dots for them and then synthesizing this into stories to say like, here's what you should be paying. Like there's sure there's lots of noise, but this is what you should be paying attention to because this is kind of happening and this will have an influence on what's next. Right. Uh, That's sort of a a very kind of uh, common pattern of sort of story formation when you're, when you're writing. And so it was very much a mindset that Meryl and I were in. And I think that this helped us actually, um, you know, see what we what we felt like was this really huge shift in food. Yes, food was beca- everyone was aware that food was becoming more popular, but I I think people didn't really see how um, how kind of broad and deep it was going to shift the way um, Americans identify themselves and the way that they lived their you know how they essentially defined their lifestyles right so it's not just about like what's you know that you were going to be eating different foods at the dinner table but that in fact you were going to design your kitchen differently and your home you were going to entertain with friends differently you were going to travel differently um that you know you were going to want to know um different things when you um when you shop for food and that it was very much like going to be woven into every aspect of the way you lived and so that instead of being this kind of like niche passion which is the way it had been sort of it had been treated in kind of food media and certainly in retail um it was it was going to be um something bigger and we we felt like there was a huge opportunity to serve people in and you know selfishly like people like us because we felt like we weren't being served well with a destination that could be this really um fantastic trustworthy resource um place that you get inspiration you would could discover uh you know products you could um you know come across new ideas and also that was very community driven because that was another big shift was that you know we could see that um you know readers shoppers you know just everyday people no longer wanted to be broadcast at whether that that meant you know somebody putting a product in front of them or an or an article to read that they wanted interaction and they also wanted to be acknowledged for their you know for their expertise and their input and we felt like there was a way to kind of combine these notions into um a site and a brand that wouldn't be a media company or wouldn't be necessarily a retail commerce company but would really be this kind of this world um that people felt like had a sense of place and that people could feel connected to and that could evolve along with their you know cooking and how they were living or how they were traveling um and so we had a big you know and obviously our vision kind of also evolved over time but you know we had um this very you know, I think critical insight that led us to start building this company. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, and you know, it's, it's, we're 10 years in and we feel like we have this really strong foundation built. Um, and it definitely has resonated with people and we have really great engagement and, you know, we continue to grow and it feels exciting because it feels like, you know, we, we sort of tapped into something early and, um, and now it's a, you know, a matter of, um, really list, continuing to listen to people and um, give them what they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said something really interesting, which is that you kind of identified that people like to be seen and like to be acknowledged for their um, c- kind of knowledge about food and their own culinary knowledge that they yeah. you know, came up with. And 
um, which I think we see again today with Instagram, um, like restoring people or like Alison Roman, I'm thinking of like, I feel like that's really key to how she got big is mm-hmm. she saw people cooking her own food. And so, um, how did, what did Food 52 look like in the beginning and how did you kind of acknowledge home cooks and their kind of expertise? Yeah. So traditionally in me- media, it was very much, um, the home cook, uh, was kind of treated as someone who was like a novice and who didn't really know what they were doing and really needed to be, have their hand held. And while sure, all of us have needed to have our hand held in the kitchen at some point or another, pe- we're in the kitchen every day, you know, and, um, people, um, in their homes that, you know, they do know a lot. They know a lot about like what, <laughs> their, what their limitations are, what their tastes are, what they want to, what they want to eat, what they're not, you know, willing to do, what is, feels like a sense of adventure and, um, and what feels like a chore. Right. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think that, um, interestingly, um, we actually got, a, a lot of inspiration from the New York times, food archives that go back actually to the 1850s and specifically to the archives that were from 1850 to about 1900 Um, because all the all I would say probably 90 to 95 percent of the food coverage in the times during that period which was immense it was every day um, was crowdsourced from readers so the the recipes primarily came from readers and they were very much like you know, tweets, they were, you know, the recipes would come in, they'd be very, um, kind of punctuated because there was an assumption that everyone knew how to cook because, you know, no one had a microwave then everyone had to cook in order, you know, there weren't places to take out food. So, um, they, they had these very punctuated recipes that were, you know, opinionated, had a lot of personal style. Um, and there were regular voices that you would see appear again and again. And we just thought, well, that's amazing because everyone thinks that crowdsourcing is this, you know, creation from the internet. Um, but of course it's not at all. Um, and you know, obviously there've been community cookbooks for decades and, um, we just felt like there was, um, especially with food kind of really catching on fire. Um, it culturally, we felt like there was an opportunity to really celebrate home cooks. So in the beginning, um, because we really focused on developing content first and really building a relationship with readers and establishing our, like our brand voice and aesthetic, we, we focused on content and specifically we started with recipe contests because we felt like that was a really good way to get people involved. And, um, and it didn't mean that everyone to be involved, you had to add a recipe to food 52 to be involved. You could, you know, vote on one of our recipe contests or, you could be a community tester, um, or you could comment on the recipe. There were lots of ways to participate, and we felt like every every avenue of participation had value mm-hmm. to future readers, right? Because if a recipe comes in from a community member and then it's you know tested by community members, it wins a contest, it you know gets um, mm-hmm. photographed by us, it it you know, we, we basically gave it more prominence in our search, um, engine and also just more prominence on the site in general. And it was a way of kind of curating the content that was coming in. And so that anyone who was new to food 52 could more easily find what was deemed by the community, great quality content. And that was something that really hadn't been done before. And we felt like it was a really, um, the way we thought of it was, um, uh, constructive, um, uh, contributions as opposed to just 
like a free for all um, kind of chat room because mm-hmm. <laughs> those existed, right? We felt like there was a way to um, kind of harness the power of community to actually create better content together. And then obviously we've gone from that to, um, you know, we've hired a lot of our community recipe contributors to be, um, um, blog, you know, blog contributors. They've gone on, they've, you know, some of them have written cookbooks for us. Some of mm-hmm. them have done video with us. You know, they've also gone on and done their own books and TV shows and things like that. So it was really this kind of like engine of um, kind of creative talent. And now we actually create products in, in collaboration with our, um, with our community. So we're obviously big believers in, in community and, and, um, and, and in, and in valuing um, kind of everyone's input. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to backtrack, you said you and Meryl started the site um, with the intention of it being very community-minded, that you didn't want to start another food media brand. Um, but it's kind of inadvertently become that. So can you talk about the current food media landscape and why Food 52 has evolved as it has to kind of answer these questions that are around us right now. Sure. And uh, sorry, just to kind of correct what I, I, I didn't mean necessarily that um, we we were, wouldn't be a media company. It's just that we wouldn't be only a media company. Mm-hmm. Like we would have a lot, we would, we were really um, focused on kind of the end consumer. In other words, like it, the end consumer doesn't ma- doesn't care like, oh, is this a media company or is this a store or mm-hmm. is this an events platform what they care about is like are they getting what they want right are am i getting the information i want the inspiration i want the sense of community the sense of connection and so that's really like we didn't we didn't go into the into building this company at like from a from a like mba business (laughs) approach of 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 like starting with a business model and then sort of figuring out what the product would be. Like mm-hmm. we started with what the product is and, and then worked back. And we, we, you know, we really had to believe that if we served people well in a way that they found engaging and actually additive to their lives, a business model would follow. Mm-hmm. And obviously we had some sense of like how you make money in media or how you make money with commerce, but we didn't want to be, um, uh, driven by that, we wanted to be driven by what we were actually providing people. Um, sorry, I think I've gone off track now, and I didn't answer your question. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so oh, oh, how is it? How, oh, it's today's media landscape. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, I, it's been amazing to see what has happened. I mean, there have been great things that have happened in media, and then also like some pretty terrible things that have happened in media over the past decade. Um, you know, it's been it's it's an industry that has been and continues to be in turmoil. Um, it's very challenged it's its business model is very challenged but despite that and I think actually you know it I'm a big believer that constraints really um um inspire creativity and in some ways um media has I think never been better because of the constraints like people have had to be really creative about um what they're putting out into the world and they've had to work harder to like um, get people's attention and to create things that are actually kind of useful and interesting to readers. And, um, you know, it's like the, 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 uh, um, under the hood is not so pretty because of course it's meant like, you know, a lot of really strained resources and layoffs and, um, and tough times. But I actually think that, um, in food media, you know, Eater 
was around, obviously, when we started, but I think that Eater has become a real kind of force in um, in the food world and um, has, um, you know, it has, it has become a really sort of, you know, go-to resource. And, um, um, you know, I find that it's, you know, it's something that I turn to regularly. I think the New York Times creating their recipe app has been, um, incredibly powerful and they really kind of tapped into their, uh, they, they really kind of leaned into their strengths. Um, you know, I was talking to Sam Sifton recently and he was saying how, you know, they've had amazing writers over, I mean, for decades and decades and decades. And in the moment, those stories that those, that those writers write are, you know, have resonance and they're, they're really important and, and, um, and often can you know be incredibly popular, but what stays around are the recipes, mm-hmm. and people don't necessarily care if it was a Mark Bittman or an Allison Roman or a Molly O'Neill recipe. What they care is that it's like an amazing recipe, right? Um, and it's not that that people don't have loyalty to specific writers' recipes, but ultimately, it's um, these recipes become um, they they take on their own lives, and they, you know they get passed along among families and friends and it's um it's this really um um kind of uh, you know incredibly useful and important part of people's um lives right because they become part of people's family traditions and so it, they recognize that um and that's when they they went after building the the um the cooking app and it's been a, obviously a huge success so they've done i think really great things um you know bon appetit has transformed actually, you know, basically at around, I think around the same time, maybe they started a little bit early. I'm trying to remember exactly when Adam Rappaport took over Bon App, but you know, they've done a phenomenal job of like, you know, really, um, I think capturing the sort of zeitgeist in food at, you know, at the moment and, um, and making it accessible and making like food, not just like stylish, but fun. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I just think like there's been a lot of there's been a lot of great work um, coming at food and from like lots of different angles. Obviously, Netflix has done amazing things, telling stories about the food world. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's been actually like this great moment, and so it feels really good to be a part of that. Obviously, um, you know, I think that the 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 thing for us is to just stay very focused on we're very much about the home and um and how people who care about you know cooking and their homes how they think how they kind of see the world and what's important to them um and not trying to like kind of be everything to everyone mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's actually talk about the proliferation of storytelling modes that each brand is kind of becoming known for like when I want a good recipe I know to turn to the New York Times um if I want kind of not even that food-centric content, but entertaining content, I would watch a Bon Appetit video. And so can you talk about how these, or how you might presume these choices are made and what each different storytelling mode kind of serves the the audience member? Yeah, I mean, I think that it comes down to uh, brand and loyalty and trust mm-hmm. and like, you know, you, and that this is what we were very much focused on from the very beginning because we felt like this was at the time that we started food 52 was incredibly lacking which was that it people were treating the enter the internet as this kind of like mechanism for reaching people as opposed to a place where you can you know create um 
a real sense of place in a world and a and a, a place to really connect deeply with people. Um, food on the internet at the time was very much like these kind of like recipe sites that you know that were very utilitarian, as opposed to ones where you felt like. Um, any kind of sense of emotion or or connection, and or that you know, and really the, the the places that that were doing that really well at the time were food blogs, and so I, you know, I think that food blogs um, and then companies like ours really sort of started to redefine what, how, you know, what the what food and the internet could look like and mean for people in their lives, and so I think you know, there are a lot of amazing choices now, and I think it really comes down to that sense of trust. Like if you if you trust the New York Times cooking app for recipes, that that's that's a that's a huge success that they've they've accomplished, right? Because um, because we do have so many choices, so that if you if that's the first place you think of, mm. um, that's great. That's great. Um, and I th- I think similarly like. Um, if you're looking for a restaurant, if you're like looking for a restaurant in a, in a neighborhood you haven't been to going, you know, turning to eater, like they've won when mm-hmm. you think of them right. as opposed to, it's basically like, <laughs> as, um, sure. All of these brands, including ours want to come up first if you're Googling, but ideally you don't have to Google. You'll just think of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, th- you know, I think that that, the, the sort of recognition and, um, uh, development of, of brands digitally um, has, you know, it's taken a long time. And I think that it's it's great to see that it's happening now. Because this is something that has existed in, in traditional media for a really long time. Like Condé Nast, like people read Condé Nast magazines because they trusted them as an authority um, and for a certain level of aesthetic and style and, um, and curation. And I think that what you're seeing now um, in food media is that that is happening or that has, has now exists online, and it really didn't 10 years ago. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Linda Liu, and I'm the host of Feast Meets West, the show that celebrates Asian culture through the lens of food here on HRN. Listen to episodes like The Evolution of Chinatown with Numwa Tea Parlors, Wilson Tang, and New York Times' Elaine Chen. Catch our ongoing series, Women in Asian Food, and spotlight episodes with our heroes like Anita Lowe. 
You can find Feast Meets West wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. This is Menta Beaton. I'm speaking with Amanda Hester, and we were just talking about the current food media landscape and how brands have really, in the past 10 years, kind of worked to develop their presence online. And um, I want to kind of get into the future of the food media landscape. Um, what do you what do you see for it, and how do you see what's taking place now contributing to where we'll go? Yeah. I would say throughout media, what's happening is just a lot of consolidation, mm-hmm. and there's obviously a lot of um, downward pressure on companies to find uh, diverse mm-hmm. revenue streams. And so I think one, I, I do think it is going to be a survival of the fittest. And there is, I do have a personal fear that like a lot of companies are going to get swallowed up by larger um, media companies. And not that that's, it, it's just, it's inevitable that um, some of the experimentation and really strong identity building that has happened with with some um, of the more startup media brands will get diluted, mm-hmm. and um, and so it could be it could be a less interesting period ahead. Um, and I mean, but I also think you know the, the ones who figure it out will become um, the kind of resources that I think traditional media was, you know, 20 years ago, where it, you have, it's the kind of thing that, you know, you, you're a devoted reader for life. Um, and I, th- I think that is something that we're starting to kind of, you're starting to feel more that, that people's like devotion and loyalty to, to um, these titles on online is, um, is sort of sinking in more deeply than it. Then I think you know there there's a there is something with the internet that um, people feel like is a little a bit ephemeral, and um, I think people are looking for something that's that's less so these days. And um, and so it could be sort of this interesting dovetailing of sort of timing of like changes in media and also public sentiment, make, meaning making for much sort of stronger, longer lasting brands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we kind of set the scene for why food media has grown to not being solely a niche interest, um, but kind of taking place in, or having an important place in many people's lives. And so, but still, it's kind of a big deal that investment group took interest in Food City 2 and Food yeah. Media Company. And so, can you talk about why that's a big deal and what this might mean? Sure. You know, um, so we took on a majority investment um, from. Uh, the the Chernin Group, um, and they have um, they have an investment thesis that you know they really believe in brands with passionate audiences that have grown organically, and that's um, you know very much um, who we are. And if you look across their, the the companies that they've invested in, um, they might seem on the surface wildly different um, because they're you know across like sports and you know anime and things like that, but um, we all share this um, sort of core uh, fan base, and um, and so you know it, it's it's been really fascinating for Meryl and me to see like over the years. You know when we first started um, and we were re- raising a seed round, 
you know, we bootstrapped the company first for the first 18 months, and then we decided to raise a seed round. And, like, no one wanted to talk to anyone in media then. Mm. It was like, it was as if, you know, sort of media was dead, and, and nobody actually was interested in food at the time. Um, and it, it wasn't um, probably until, like, I would say five or, set, five or six years ago that then media suddenly took off, and then there was tons of investment in media. And actually, media is now... now and um, back where it was when we were when we were first. Um, so you know, there's also there's all these kind of like investing trends that you know you're trying to build your company, but you your um, resources are dependent on the sort of shifting winds of the of the investment community. And so we've you know we've never raised um, a lot of money. Um, and so when TCG came to us. Um, we didn't, you know, we, a lot of sort of, when you get to a sort of certain size, a lot of um, investment firms are reaching out and sometimes they're just trying to kind of keep an ear to the ground and sometimes they're trying to get some comps from you for another investment they're looking at. Like you never really know how sincere their interest is. And sometimes they are just wanting to keep track of you so that when you get to a certain size and you're kind of, you fit their size investment, they can have a, com- a real conversation with you. So they reached out cold and um, we didn't know that much about them at the time. Um, but then once we started talking and we could sort of see where their interests were um it was um it was incredibly uh appealing to us because one of the challenges we've had as a company is we felt that investors didn't understand what we were trying to build Mm -hmm. um and it was really hard to kind of find the right fit of like investors who had um investment thesis that like fit with us where they understand they appreciated the uh kind of blood sweat and tears it takes to um to grow organically and that uh, we weren't going to just throw money at marketing no matter how much money they gave us. Um, and, um, and that also like that, that also meant like we weren't going, we have grown very fast, but like not as fast as you can if you just throw money at marketing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that we weren't willing to sacrifice, um, our kind of authenticity for that kind of growth. And so, um, anyway, so it's, um, you know, I think it's been a, a, a um, a great um, kind of sh- uh, sort of show of comp- of um, validation, really, of like what we've been building and where we're going, and also the opportunity ahead of us to have a company um, put so much money behind um, a company like ours, which again, like, has this you know mixed model. Um, you know, for many years, investors would say to us, you know, well, like, okay, yes, we understand you have commerce and we understand you have media, but which are you? Because you have to pick a lane. Hmm. One has to be dominant. Um, and we always refused to really answer that question because we felt like it, it, was, it wasn't even a question. It was really a statement to us. And we felt like, we, frankly, we just disagreed. Um, so we agreed to disagree um, that, in, you know, in, in fact you know, we were, we were building this resource and that you had to see it that way. Um, and we were building this brand that connected with people. And if you didn't, then, um, it probably wasn't going to be a good partnership. Anyway, TCG really did understand that. I mean, they, that's why they reached out because they already understood that about what we were building. Um, and so it was sort of this perfect match and this perfect timing because, you know, we also had got, you know, we're, about a hundred people now and, um, you know, our revenue is, you know, is pretty significant and, um, we're moving into kind of a growth phase. And so it's really great to, you know, have partners who understand that, um, and are willing to, um, you know, really, really invest in that and, um, and, um, and don't want us to just, 
pour it all into marketing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually going to make you choose and we're going to talk about content now. <laughs> okay. Um, so can you talk about, for people who don't know, what is SEO driven content? Oh, uh-huh. Um, and yeah, let's start there. Yeah. So SEO stands for search and engine optimization. And what that means is, you know, essentially kind of figuring out the puzzle of, of Google's algorithm Mm -hmm. so that you, when you, when someone puts in search terms, um, your content will come up as high as possible on and ideally on the first page and then as high as possible on the first page. Um, and Google never reveals, you know, exactly what they're looking for. Um, and it also changes a lot. So it, um, there are people who are SEO experts who help you figure that out. Um, and there are also like consulting firms who like you can hire and they'll like look at how you're, um, it, 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 I mean, there's a, like a, a lot of different factors that play into it, but it can, you know, be how like your articles are titled, how they're tagged, how your pages are structured. Um, and, um, you know, it's, um, the thing I would say one very positive thing is that, over time, Google has continually kind of tweaked its algorithm to reward higher quality content mm-hmm. uh, as, as it has figured out what higher quality content is. And I would, you know, I think probably there are plenty of people who would argue that, it, you know, it's not totally there yet, but it has, you know, over the course of our business, we've seen it get, you know, better and better. Um, and, you know, because now if you look for a recipe, um, let's just, I'm going to make something up and I don't know what the results are, but let's just say chocolate pudding pie. <laughs> which is a recipe I was just looking at in Bon Appetit um, uh, in their newsletter. But, uh, it, it, you know, you will see smaller blogs now on the first page. So they've done work to make make sure that they're rewarding the content itself as opposed to just these giant sites who have SEO experts on their team mm-hmm. who are constantly, you know, playing the sort of game of SEO. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like chicken or the egg almost so because I then go to those small blogs and find that they feel very SEO driven where they have a ton of text um, and you know a lot of tagged photos or I don't know how they're doing it and and so do you think which do you they think probably are somewhat aware mm-hmm. or you know it, or if not fully aware of like what needs to be done and maybe they pay attention to the the sort of Google SEO trends um, I mean there are lots of people who blog about that specifically and then there's lots of information about like what you should be or should not be doing you know these days um, you know I think the way like we th- see it is we want to be optimized as much as we can without it compromising what our mm-hmm. our sort of intent is um, and and really the reason we want to do it is mostly so that if somebody's Googling something, that means they probably, they don't know a great resource for that, whatever they're looking for. And so we want people to be able to discover us as a resource and ideally answer that question that they have in the moment, but also get sort of drawn into our world and like, oh, hey, here's this, you know, this place that I didn't know about. And maybe, you know, next time I'm looking for a recipe or I'm asking a question about, you know, how to, how to, um, season my cast iron pans, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll know to come here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's our, our goal is more of like a, a long game, like sure that the click in the moment, like it has value, but it doesn't really have a ton of value if people are just like getting their answer and leaving and never coming back mm-hmm. again, that, you know, th- th- there are sort of two schools of thought in media. There are, are the, the sort of bigger <laughs> media brands that, that, um, you know, they, 
are really reliant on having huge amounts of traffic. And so they're in not all of them, but many are, are very focused on just getting you to click on those, on the, all those Google searches and just getting that hit so that they can get that impression for their ad sales. Um, and, um, you know, that, that is one way to kind of, um, you know, (laughs) um, guarantee your, your revenue stream. I think that we are much more, um, focused on, yes, of course, clicks matter and impressions matter to us, but we want to build relationships with people over time. So, you know, and I think you see these two schools of thought pretty, um, vividly in, in media, across all media, not Mm -hmm. just in food. Yeah. As kind of an outside observer, um, when I think, of a food media brand using or even considering SEO driven content, I'm almost, I would almost believe that you don't care so much for it, right? Like if, if you already, like we, we, we name stories according to like, you know, we'll, we'll study like, you know, what, um, kind of words are, are going to perform better and we might, you know, title something. So it's not, it's not that we don't, it's, Mm -hmm. but it, it, we don't want it dictating like (laughs) all of our content, you know? Yeah, so as um, Food Media is now, or Food 52 has now become this trusted resource for many readers, um, how much do you think you're observing SEO driven content trends versus kind of being the ones that are forecasting? Yeah, so we hired our first SEO expert Mm -hmm. this past year. Um, and she's been amazing, um, because I think she's come at it for very much. She came from Hearst and, um, and, you know, Hearst produces, you know, tons of great quality content. They are, they, you know, they have like whole SEO teams, but, you know, she understood, you know, I think it's a matter of sort of understanding what you're trying to accomplish, um, and then working back from there. But, you know, we, um, you know, some like there there are some changes that we have not been able to make but that will help our um our search results for instance um <laughs> and I, I don't want to go too deep on this because I can't um <laughs> but uh you know there's something about like sort of the dates of articles and I think that the way we display dates is like too prominent mm-hmm. and but so it would re- require some engineering work um but once we do that it'll help surface some art older articles that um, could be incredibly relevant to someone today, and you know, because we're in a we're in a a, um, a topic area that actually there's a lot of evergreen content, and so it's something that you have to. One of the things that Google rewards is like new, fresh content, right? And so if you have an article that's ten years old, even though it actually may answer your question, they're going to reward the one that was written, you know, that has the same kind of quality of content that might have been written yesterday, mm-hmm. and so. Um, it's things like that. Like there, there are a lot of kind of tweaks that don't necessarily, um, they don't impact the, the content itself, but they, it impacts how, how it plays. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, she, she has really focused on, on those kinds of, um, um, well first lower, like kind of lower hanging fruit and then sort of going deeper into things that, um, um, will have a big impact on us without us um, compromising our standards. Mm -hmm. That's kind of really exciting to hear instead of rewarding the contribution of digital trash out into the world, um, rewarding content that's already fine and just needs like a little love. Yeah. And some of it is like just, you know, giving it a a new, you know, taking something like an older piece of content, like an older recipe and like, you know, giving it the head note of refresh or, Mm -hmm. you know, giving it some, some, 
sort of more recent con- you know context that is actually additive, not just kind of fluff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we talked a lot about the future of food media, but what do you see for the future of home cooking? So we are obviously very bullish, and not just um, uh, to serve, serve our own purposes, but actually um, because home itself is becoming a more and more culturally a focus for people. And I, there are a number of factors for that. One is that entertainment, like now you can get pretty much any kind of, you know, movie, um, television show, game at home. You don't have to go out. People choose to go out. They did, you know, you used to have to go to the movies if you wanted to see a movie. And, um, and so entertaining at home has be has become a much bigger thing and is going to only going to kind of continue. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think just given the sort of global political climate, home has become much more of a sanctuary for people and like a necessary oasis. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big cultural shift that I, you know, we can see is obviously not going to um, probably reverse itself anytime soon. Um, uh, and then, you know, I think also just in, you know, the, the age of Instagram and where, you know, people like the term house proud used to be a thing that was used in kind of, um, shelter magazines. You know, if you were house proud, you like, you know, you took, um, kind of, uh, you know, care of your home. You put a lot of, a lot of attention and, um, time into making your home stylish or comfortable or whatever it was. It was an expression of, you you know, of who you are. And, um, it, and the internet has really, and Instagram specifically and Pinterest has like really brought that to life. And I think has really inspired a lot of people to, um, see their homes as a real reflection of who, who they are and a real, a really great way, great creative outlet for expressing themselves. And so we feel like, um, people's homes and, you know, people want to show off their homes and have people over. And, um, it's just going to become a, a bigger and bigger focus for people. And, and so as part of that, um, cooking is, is actually a natural, is naturally connected. And obviously cooking has, has, um, you know, taken off in, um, enormous ways over the past decade. I think that cooking, um, that the difference is, and I'm, you know, this existed, I think even when we were starting the company, but is only kind of continuing to evolve and refine is that, you know, people don't have, don't have to cook as much. It's really a choice. It's like a lifestyle choice. Mm -hmm. And so there's less of the like, uh, you know, cooking, um, because you have to get dinner. I mean, obviously like I, you know, (laughs) yes, it still exists that people have to get dinner on the table, but there's also, you know, a whole, like, a you know, there are people who are not, um, you know, married with kids who are interested in cooking now. It's not something you just do out of necessity, but you do by choice. And I think that, um, um, it's, it's led to a lot of, um, exploration in cooking. I think that there's like, people are so much more interested in diverse cuisines and, um, and experimenting and again, like seeing food as this chance to express who they are and what they like and they don't like. And, um, there's artistry to it. And I, you know, it's to us, we feel like it's such an incredibly exciting time to be in this field. Um, and to really just find ways to kind of inspire people and, um, and support them in this interest and, uh, and to also like make, you know, like help people feel 
kind of liberated to to take on whatever culinary challenge they want to you know whether it's like the perfect avocado toast or it's like some instant pot dish or you know really mastering um bread baking at home mm-hmm. i feel like the only thing needed to take house proud from when was that when that, that was, was probably like you know in the 90s yeah from the 90s to now is just put a hashtag in front of it you know, <laughs> hashtag house proud yeah well it's so funny that you hadn't heard that term before I mean no. it's not it doesn't surprise me now but yeah mm-hmm. it was sort of a thing that people would say mm-hmm. on that note I think this is a good way to end thank you so much for joining me today Amanda. thank you so much for having me it was really a treat Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.